Good morning, everyone. It's nice to look out and see the eggplant-colored T-shirts. That is eggplant, isn't it? Someone told me it's eggplant. I don't purple to me, but it's nice to see all the T-shirts. Uh, you look good, most of you. Thank you to each and every one of you uh, for your service, your contribution this past week to our VBS. We received daily email, didn't we, encouraging us to pray uh, for the speakers, for the teachers, for the children. And I want to encourage you now to continue to pray for those children who attended, uh, especially those unbelievers who attended, came under the sound of the gospel, that there might be lasting fruit, that the Spirit of God would truly work in those young hearts, boys and girls bringing them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, my sincere thanks on behalf of the elders, on behalf of the whole church, everybody just so much thanks for your, for your contribution and for making it, making it possible. Uh, turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 9. I'm also going to ask you to take your church bulletin, worship guide, and open it, fold it over if you like, and look at the right side entitled Sermon Notes. So again, you have your worship guide open and you are looking at the page entitled Sermon Notes, God's People. And that's the title for today's sermon. The text, Romans 9, verses 24 through 29. And you have now found Romans chapter 9 in your Bible. Uh, what I want to do for one last time, is to begin by giving you an overview of this chapter. I've done this at least two or three times already. I think it's worth doing again. If for no other reason, then I want to impress upon you Paul's thought flow. I really want to impress upon you the fact that Paul is so theological in Romans chapter 9 because he is so pastoral in Romans chapter 8. And what flows out from his pen in Romans chapter 9 is directly related to what he has said pastorally in Romans chapter 8. It's important for us to hear that, recognize it, never lose sight of it, because we enter into some deep waters in Romans 9. We confront some very difficult doctrines, and if they are extracted from their pastoral context, we can make a downright mess of them. And so we dare never lose sight of the context in which they are found. And again, that pastoral context must remain forefront in our minds. And so you have your church bulletin. And you will see that overview right there at the top of the page. It begins with three words. Do you see them? I am sure. What's that got to do with anything? Look back in the eighth chapter, the opening words of verse 38. Paul writes, for I am sure of what? That neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We are absolutely confident of that. Why? Because of what Paul says earlier in chapter 8, way back in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're absolutely certain of that. Why? Because of what Paul has just said in the immediately preceding verses that we know. We know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. What does it mean to be called according to His purpose? It means that He foreknew us. And those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be like Christ. And those whom He predestined, He called in time. And those whom He called in time, He justified. And those whom He has justified, He has glorified. It's past in accordance with the eternal decrees of God, it is going to happen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. This is why I am sure, says Paul in verse 38, that there is nothing in the entire created order that can separate us, me as a Christian, from God's love for me in Christ Jesus. Paul is very pastoral in Romans chapter 8, but he knows what he says in that chapter in particular. What he has just said at the end of that chapter creates a dilemma. That's the next heading there, isn't it, in the overview. The first five verses of Romans chapter 9, a dilemma. What is the dilemma? The dilemma exists because of a promise given all the way back in Genesis chapter 17. And the promise was simply this, God speaking to that great patriarch Abraham, I will make an everlasting covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. And this is the summation of the covenant in one single promise. I will be God to you and to your offspring. Great promise. And now I hear this great pastoral declaration in chapter 8 that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, God has taken me as His child, and He is my God. What a great promise. But here's the dilemma. God gave that word, that promise, back in Genesis 17. And as I look around at the Jews, the offspring of Abraham... I realize what? God isn't their God. They're accursed. They are, the vast majority of them, cut off from God. But God made a promise. I will make an everlasting covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your offspring. I will be God to you. And to your offspring. It's a promise. And yet in Paul's day, I look around and 98.7% of Jews have rejected the Lord Jesus. They are on the outside looking in. They are again in a word, accursed. Well, doesn't that mean God's promise has failed? Doesn't it? If God's promise has failed, well, here's what I'm thinking. 
I'm thinking that great declaration that I am sure, verses 38 and 39, is downright gibberish. I'm not sure of anything. God might break his promise. There is something that might come along and separate me from God's love because something obviously came along and separated the Jews from God's love. Do you understand the dilemma? The solution in verse 6. No, 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 no. It is not as though the word of God has failed. That promise way back in Genesis 17 has not failed. Here's the problem. You've misunderstood the promise. You've misunderstood the promise. And so Paul elaborates there in the sixth verse. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Meaning what? There are two Israels. There's an Israel within Israel. There is, I might say, a spiritual Israel with an ethnic Israel. He makes it even clearer in the next verse. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So simply being a physical descendant of Abraham does not make you one of his offspring. Meaning what? You are not necessarily one of the recipients of that promise. Back in Genesis 17. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And it gets very clear in the 8th verse. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, that is the physical descendants of Abraham, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so the promise was given to a select few within ethnic Israel. And he gives that first example. We've already referred to it, the first proof, the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. And then he gives, referring again to the outline, a second proof in verses 9 through 13. And there he appeals to Jacob and Esau. And so he says, look, all these guys, these were physical descendants of Abraham. They were all his physical offspring. Well, if that promise given back in Genesis 17, I will be God to you and to your offspring after you, if that promise was given indiscriminately to all of Abraham's physical descendants, well, that would mean Ishmael was in. It would also mean Esau was in. They weren't in. So obviously the promise is far more exclusive than we actually think it was. As a matter of fact, Paul's point is this. The promise was never given to Abraham's physical descendants. The offspring in view are his spiritual descendants. Those who are of like faith with Abraham. Ultimately, all those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, as Paul drives that home in that second proof, verses 9 through 13, he elaborates this difference between Jacob and Esau. And he makes it clear that the difference between the two did not reside in them. Nothing they had ever done in terms of their works. But what differentiated them was certainly simply this, God's choice. God's purpose of election. That is the phrase he uses in verse 11. And now off he goes in our overview, off on a tangent, really, beginning in verses 14 through 18, where he addresses a question. He's just raised this whole issue of God's purpose of election, that the children of promise are ultimately those whom God calls, those whom God calls according to his purpose of election. It raises an issue. It raises a question. There's the question in verse 14. What shall we say then? 
Is there injustice on God's part? Paul's answer, by no means. And he goes on to quote two Old Testament texts from the book of Exodus to prove that salvation is of mercy. It's of mercy because we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And God does not owe anything to anyone. And so therefore, God is absolutely free. He is at liberty to bestow mercy upon whomsoever he pleases. It leads to a second question. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can he resist his will? Does this mean we're simply robots? Does this mean we don't have free will? This, this, the impl- I'm, try- I'm wrestling with the implications of what this means. God's purpose of election. And Paul deals with that question as it's given in verse 19 all the way through to verse 23. And there he makes, this is from last Sunday, three appeals. He appeals firstly to God's thoughts. Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He appeals secondly to God's rights. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. And his third appeal to God's motives. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known? The riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so are you following Paul's thought flow? We have covered all of that. And now appealing again to the outline I've given you there in the worship guide, you'll notice I've moved everything to the right. From the solution to the proof, first proof to the second proof to the first question to the second question. And then I've brought it all the way back over to the left again. Solution. Why? Because in verse 24, what Paul essentially does is he picks up where he left off in verses 6 and 7. Matter of fact, you can lift. Now keep verse 8 there. But you can lift verses 9 through 23 out of the text. Compress verse 24 all the way back to verse 8. And you have his essential line of argument. Everything in between is a tangent. As he addresses issues, provides proof, and handles questions. But his central line of thinking as it picks up now in verse 24 goes all the way back to verses 6, 7, and 8. Again, by way of reminder, there he has made the point that God's promise To Abraham concerning his offspring has not failed. It has not failed for the following reason. It is because the physical offspring of Abraham are not actually counted as children. But the children of promise. Those chosen according to God's purpose of election. And so what does he say there in verse 6? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there has always been an Israel within Israel. There has always been a spiritual Israel. The heirs of the promise within ethnic Israel. 
And now Paul builds on it in verse 24. And are you ready for this? He absolutely blows their mind. Why? Because now he is going to reintroduce a group of people known as the Gentile. And he's going to demonstrate what? Simply this. That he's not merely referring, when we think of that promise, I will make an everlasting covenant between you and your offspring after you. I will be God to you and I will be God to your offspring. That promise does not merely apply to that remnant, that spiritual offspring within Israel. But it also includes all believing Gentiles. That's what he says, verse 24. Even, even us. Amen is right. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Proof. You want proof? He picks up the Old Testament, goes to the book of Hosea. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And so he is building. You have to keep it in your mind's eye. He is building on the point he has made back in verses 6, 7, and 8. Again, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Again, verse 8. This means that it is not, oh, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And Paul now makes that promise expansive. And he demonstrates, you see, the promise not only given to the remnant within Israel but also given to all believing Gentiles. They too are the children of promise. Meaning what? They too are the offspring in view way back in Genesis 17. Meaning what? God is my God. And he claims me as one of his people. And now he's going to prove it. He's going to prove it. He's made a statement there. You think of it as a thesis statement in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let me deal with the Gentiles, says Paul. And let me take you to the Old Testament to demonstrate that God calls his people from among the Gentiles. And he goes to the book of Hosea. Fascinating little prophetic book. You go back and you look at that prophet Hosea. God commanded him to take a wife. They had three children. God gives a name to each of those children commensurate with Israel's condition. Because you see the nation of Israel. Yes, there was a theocracy. Yes, God had entered into an earthly covenant with them at Sinai. And God had 
orchestrated them into this theocracy, he himself as their head. They had committed what? Spiritual whoredom. And God now, in accordance with what he had said when he established that covenant, now I'm going to send you back into captivity. He commands Hosea to marry this woman. They have three children. He gives the most interesting names to these three children. The first he calls God sows. How would you like that as your name? God sows. There he is as a little boy running around. There goes God sows. God scatters. It gets worse. The second name is this, no mercy. That's it. That's his name. The third is this, not my people. Not my people. So the fruit of that marriage, three children bearing three names. God sows, or rather God scatters. No mercy and not my people. Spoken to the nation of Israel of Hosea's day. It is not all doom and gloom. Because in the midst of that warning of impending judgment, the Lord also says this, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. You read on in Hosea and we hear the following. And these are the texts Paul is quoting here in Romans 9. I will sow her. That's the first name, right? God sows. I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now, tremendous promises, aren't they? Do you understand what Paul is doing here, though, in Romans 9? To whom is he applying these promises? The Gentiles. He has completely reinterpreted the promise in the light of the coming of Christ in New Testament revelation. And he has demonstrated what? That the people actually in view, the nation actually in view, are the Gentiles. God has scattered. No mercy. Not my people. But the promise has been made, the day would come when he would gather, when he would bestow mercy where formerly there was no mercy, and he would take to himself a people formerly who were not his people. That's what he's doing in verses 25 and 26. He is simply proving the fact that God has called his people from among the Gentiles. Not only has he called them from among the Gentiles, he has also called them from among the Jews. And that's what he now demonstrates in verse 27, 28, and 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So go think back to Isaiah's day. Again, Israel committed spiritual harlotry, proved unfaithful to that covenant. And God announces impending judgment, impending doom, the Assyrian invasion, which will be followed by the Babylonian invasion, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Well, that is exactly what was happening in Paul's day. Lots of Jews around, Jews right across the Roman Empire, but it was only Israel within Israel. It was only the children of the promise. It was only the remnant that was saved. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And so again, the key statement, verse 24, 
even us. Building on what he says back in verses 6, 7, and 8 concerning the Abrahamic covenant and concerning that promise given to Abraham and this issue, let's resolve it once and for all. To whom was the promise given? Who are the children of promise? Not the physical descendants of Abraham. Ishmael was out, Esau was out, and most of the Israelites were out during their history. There was always a remnant within Israel. They were the children of promise. They were God's spiritual household. They were the ones called according to God's purpose of election. And now it gets even more expansive. Because adding to that number, God has now called his people from among the Gentiles. And so his people from among the Jews, his people from among the Gentiles, now they constitute one people of God, one household of God, one temple of God, one church of God. And that is the fulfillment of the promise God had given to Abraham way back in Genesis 17. So has the word of God failed? If you think it's failed, it's because you completely misunderstood the promise. The promise is given to those who are called according to God's purpose of election. From among the Gentiles and, amen, from among the Jews. You see, remember, I said it last week, as far as Paul is concerned, there are only three groups of people. There are unbelieving Jews, there are unbelieving Gentiles, and there are believers, Christians, the church of God, the one household of God. As I've reflected on this, meditated on this, I was reading a book this past week by Whitney, Don Whitney. And in this book, he makes the point that as we approach Scripture... It serves us well if we hover over it like a hummingbird. So you got those flowers in your backyard, if you've got a hummingbird feeder, and those little birds, they approach the feeder, and there they just, their wings going, I don't know, 100 miles a second. And there they are hovering over that feeder, feeding themselves. And Whitney's point is this, when it comes to God's Word, we need to hover over it. And how often we fail to extract what it is we need, what is vital to our spiritual existence because of a failure to hover. You might think to yourselves, and I was tempted to think this way as I read these verses, well, let's just hurry on. Let's take another chunk and keep going because, okay, he makes a statement, takes us back to the book of Hosea, takes us back to the book of Isaiah. What, what is there really here to ponder? I've hovered over these verses. And I want to share with you five reasons why these verses have been precious to me over the past couple of weeks. This text in particular, here's number one. It has clarified yet again for me. I mean, it has done this for me before. And other passages of Scripture, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, for example, come to mind, have certainly done this. But these verses in particular have clarified my understanding of ethnic Israel. They've clarified my understanding of ethnic Israel. Who are the children of promise? Once and for all, here it is again. They are those who are called according to God's purpose of election from among Gentiles and Jews. It means the following. It means ethnic Israel is not the people of God. All right? There have been times I've been accused of, of what's called replacement theology. It's, uh, it's really a, a straw man, which some have erected, it's the idea, oh, you're one of those people who believes that the church has replaced ethnic Israel as the people of God. That's replacement, you hear it? Replacement theology. The church has replaced ethnic Israel as the people of God. I don't believe in replacement theology. I don't believe in replacement theology for the following reason. 
There was nothing to replace. Ethnic Israel was never the people of God. There was an earthly covenant, a theocracy established. But this text makes it abundantly. I don't know how Paul could be any clearer. And yet the confusion that still resonates with people today. I don't know how he can make it any clearer. The people of God have always been the children of promise. The people of God have always been those who have been spiritually circumcised in heart. The people of God have always been those who have believed in God. He makes it clear again, verse 8. This means, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Even us, verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Oh, this text has clarified my understanding of ethnic Israel. I've been accused of it. I've had, pe- I've had people yelling at me over this. I really have. It's quite interesting. I won't go down that road and share those stories with you, but I have. People get very hot and bothered over this. My friend, I think you're, I think you're, you're arguing against Scripture and the clear teaching of Scripture. There are unbelieving Jews that are unbelieving Gentiles, and then there are the people of God. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. I get tired of it. I really do get tired of it. And, and I was confronted of it where I came from in Ontario. I've really been confronted with it down here in, in these parts. It seems to be quite popular. Almost the idea that there are Christians and then there are really super Christians who get into the whole messianic movement and Jewish thing. If you, if you, if you lean that way, my friend, I'm going to say I'm going to say it pastorally. I don't want to argue over this, but I'm going to say it pastorally. You need to reconsider. I don't know what you think you're doing. And even people who get excited, they, oh, the temple's going to be rebuilt. If the temple were rebuilt, guess what? That would just be another form of idolatry. The temple has already come, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we're one with him. It doesn't get any better than that. Brick and mortar covered with gold. I don't care how big the thing is. It's got nothing to do with honoring Christ. And yet we still have these Christians running around today as if there's something bigger and better by looking back to the shadow. The shadow is gone. We now live in the substance Christ, he has come, and the covenant has been fulfilled, and he calls his people, and that everlasting covenant, we're going to celebrate it later, it stands sure, I will be their God, I will be your God, Abraham, and the God of your offspring after you, all who are called according to my purpose of election. Oh, it brings such clarity of thinking. I could add to that, I won't. We'll go on to number two. It has enlarged my vision of what God is doing in the world. Look again at verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Go all the way back to verse 23. God's purpose, overall purpose, is what? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. See, I, these verses, what this text, what it gives me, it now gives me, I now have categories. I have categories for making sense of human history. That's what I have now. Why did God create this universe? Why did God willingly, by a privative decree, permit the, the fall? Why didn't God destroy humanity at the time of the flood? Why has God preserved humanity 
for all these centuries. Why does God endure and put up with all that he puts up with in our own day? Why has God restrained humanity's evil, thereby ensuring that the world isn't as bad as it could be? I now have answers to the big question, why? It's right there in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us. Underline the word, circle it, put stars around it, do something. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. See, those verses for me make sense of human history. They, they provide the answer to the big question, why? The answer is simply this, the revelation of the glory of God toward vessels of mercy. That is why. Third thing I've gleaned from this text as I've hovered over it is this. It has shaped my identity. He's really shaped my identity. Look at verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. There was a time when I wasn't numbered among God's people. Now I am. There was a time when I wasn't numbered among God's beloved. Now I am. There was a time when I wasn't numbered among God's sons. Now I am. It's summed up wonderfully by the Apostle Peter in his first epistle, chapter 2. But you, speaking to Christians, hear these words, please. And hear the echoes out of the Old Testament. But you are a chosen Race, that's ethnicity. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, that's religion. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. I belong to a race, and it's not Caucasian or Anglo-Saxon. I belong to a nation, it's not Canada, nor is it the United States. I belong to a people, and it's not just people in general, it's a very specific group. I belong to the household of God, a holy chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This frees me from the prison cell of scorn, contempt, and slander, whatever might be coming down the highway in our own day, frees me from it because I know who I am in Christ and I know what God thinks of me and I know what God has taken me and called me to be. It frees me from the prison cell of scorn, contempt, and slander. It gives me an enlarged heart for all races. God intends to save innumerable people who don't look like me or talk like me. Innumerable people. This trumps my national identity. I, I, am, I do believe in nationalism. Don't misunderstand me. But my chief concern isn't, my chief concern, my primary concern is not what is in the interest of the United States. My chief principal concern is what is in the best interest of God's people. We sometimes talk about this being one nation under God. 
My friends, as a church, we are the one nation under God. We are the one nation under God. There is only one nation under God. Christians, believers, we have been called to be a holy race, a holy nation, a holy people, his possession. Yes, we should get involved in our country. Yes, we should get involved in our society. Yes, we should lament the U-turn and the course, the direction in which we're heading. Yes, as we have opportunity, we should seek to minister. We should seek to love our neighbors by getting involved. Yes, 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 yes. I don't deny any of that. Oh, but I do know where my identity finally really lies. I do know what nation to which I finally belong. And it is God's nation. It is God's people, a holy race. This guards also my heart against misplaced hope. My hope does not lie in this earth. My hope does not lie. My hope is not fixed on the rise and fall of any earthly empire, any earthly nation, or any earthly country. My hope is fixed on God's nation. My hope is fixed on God's people among whom I am numbered. And therefore, this hope is unshakable no matter what's going on and transpiring around me. And the headlines changing every day, 10 times a day. And if you're just taking that in and taking it in, taking it in, you're going to work yourself into an awful frenzy, my friend. Yes, be informed. That's fine. But understand where our hope is not earthly. Our hope is not terrestrial. Our hope is in God's kingdom. And again, always keep in view Christ's promise. I will build my church, not an earthly empire. I will build my church, not an earthly country. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That shapes my identity. As I've hovered over these verses, this text, oh, it has heightened my appreciation of God's mercy in Christ. Look at what we see in verse 29. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If God had left me to myself, I know exactly what I would have been. And I know beyond any shadow of a doubt what would have been my destiny. And I have it there foreshadowed centuries ago in that fire and brimstone that fell and destroyed and utterly consumed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there I catch but a glimpse. And I pray you learn this lesson and you have learned it well. There I catch but a glimpse of the wrath of God and what it is I have been saved from. And I have been saved from it for one reason, one reason alone, the mercy of God. The fifth thing I have profited from, as I have pondered these verses, meditate upon them, is this. And this brings us right back to the context of the chapter. It has fortified my certainty that nothing can separate me from God's love. It has fortified my certainty that nothing can separate me from God's love. Never lose sight of it, especially as we turn our attention in a few moments to the Lord's Supper. Never lose sight of what Paul says back there in chapter 8, verse 38. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All he does in chapter 9 is dispel any lingering 
uncertainty and affirms in doing so, again, this glorious truth that nothing, absolutely nothing, being numbered one of God's people, being numbered one of God's beloved, being numbered one of God's sons, nothing can separate me from God's love. We sing it. Here it is. Beautiful stanza. As we conclude, the work which God's goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now, nor all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. Our Father, we pray that we would take those words to heart this day, that we would think on them, ponder them, and consider what it means to be numbered among your people. Consider what it means to be one with the Lord Jesus. Oh, and consider what it means to know the assurance of sins forgiven and the hope of eternal life. As we turn now to celebrate the Lord's Supper and partake of the bread and of the cup, we do ask again that you would draw our minds away from ourselves, the affairs of this past week, and that we would lift our eyes heavenward and gaze upon the Lord Jesus, and that we would remember his death, his burial, his resurrection, all that has been given for our redemption. We ask this now in his most precious and worthy name. Amen.